I think I've listened to 300 plus of your podcasts and and the deal we got is absolutely linked to the learnings that you and your community have shared and I'm unbelievably grateful for you and your guests because like you kind of virtually mentored me without ever even realizing it and I think if people invest the time in listening to the stories and the anecdotes and the tactics and the strategies they'll get a better deal and they'll they'll get it right timing wise Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John Warlow is joined by entrepreneur Ramon Segal. Ramon sold his marketing agency, forget this, just over 10 times EBITDA. But before we get there, in today's episode, Ramon mentions a due diligence checklist that he wished he used before entering into the process of selling his company. And I have actually found that checklist and linked it in the show notes section of today's episode over at builttosell.com. So you can head over to builttosell.com and grab that free checklist now. Okay, so now let me tell you about Ramon, who, as I had mentioned, sold his marketing agency, Rum Marketing, for over 10 times EBITDA. In this episode, I want you to focus on the critical pivot Ramon made with his company and how that pivot ultimately propelled him to an absolutely wonderful exit. Here to share the full story with John Warlow today is Ramon Segal. Enjoy. Ramon Segal, welcome to Built Cell Radio. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, as you know, I'm a, a bit of a super fan. So it's, uh, it's, it's a bit surreal being interviewed by the man that he is here yeah. while, I'm, while I'm running every week. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for you joining me and, and telling me a little bit about remarketing. So what did this company do? What do you guys do? Yeah, so I mean, in in very simple terms, we um, you know we're a full service kind of marketing agency, which doesn't make us particularly different from other marketing agencies. I suppose what makes the business particularly unique is the niche that it focuses on. So the business, since its inception in two thousand and nine, has always had a, a kind of specialism in the pharmaceutical kind of supply chain which is known as the kind of outsourcing space. So for your listeners, I suppose, just to kind of give some context to that, if you think about the COVID vaccine, the COVID vaccine is is obviously you know made by very reputable brands, or sorry, marketed and, and produced by reputable brands. But what sits behind that product is an ecosystem and supply chain that developed that product, got it through clinical trials, got it to market, and then now is then responsible for the distribution. Our clients are involved in that supply chain. So they are B2B, very kind of very highly regulated, very high tech, very scientific. So we effectively help companies in that space, who typically are vendors and suppliers, help them with their messaging, their marketing, their lead generation. And what a weird little corner of the world to get involved <laughs> in. Like, how did you, like, are you a doctor or a no, pharmacist absolutely, or how absolutely. on earth did you get involved in that? Honestly, John, it is, it is such a random, <laughs> I wish, you know, you'd think I was a medic or a scientist and, yeah, that's but I'm not, I, you know, yeah. I, I, I did marketing at university and I ended up, um, one of the first jobs I had 
um, one of the first clients I had was a contract manufacturing organization that made drugs for clinical trials. And I just found the whole thing fascinating. And I had actually worked for Heinz as in ketchup and, and beans and all that kind of stuff prior to that. Mm-hmm. So what I found, is, I suppose, astounding was just that there was just no marketing focus in these these sectors. And so, you know, I was optimizing, I was optimizing websites and doing Google ad campaigns in 2010, well before anyone else had actually, you know, the average value for these clients of winning a contract was hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions. So the ROI on them is huge if you if you get it get it right. And so I just fell into it by accident in 2004 and spent my spent the majority of my career in, in that space. And did you remain disciplined at the temptations of wandering outside of that niche? Absolutely not. So I'll tell you why. <laughs> so so I, I started remodeling in 2009 and the first few clients were all in the kind of pharmaceutical supply chain. But, you know, it was a side gig for the first couple of years. It wasn't, it was never intended to become the company that it has become. And what, what was interesting was once once I kind of went for it, you know, the business has been going for a couple of years and we attracted, you know, people came, people like, hey, you guys do marketing. Do you want to give us, you help us do this? And we helped launch a TV channel. We worked for bars, for restaurants, like you name it, we did it. But we did this, we kind of had this kind of core specialism. And in about 2015, 16, we were going through a patch where I was just, um, Honestly, I was just like, I was kind of, what are we doing? You know, what's the point in all this? And we were winning clients as, as quick as we were losing them. And I did an analysis of the business and where we looked at uh, kind of high maintenance, low maintenance clients versus profit, low profit and high profit, this matrix. And and I know we'll come on to talk about the book, but it's it's one of the first chapters in the book. Um, and what that, <laughs> when I did that was a realization that actually, all the clients we loved working with that were loyal, that paid well, were predominantly all B2B and actually all in the in this pharmaceutical supply chain. So I kind of at the time made what felt like a very courageous decision to just effectively refocus the entire business on this sector. Um, and at the time that was less than half of our business. So it just, but it felt right and the sector was growing it was global and that really excited the team and I at the time, John, like we, it was just cool traveling all over the world as part of a marketing, you know, it's, you know, at a time where Instagram and Facebook and all these types of platforms are getting bigger and bigger, you know, our team would be like, hey, we're in Copenhagen today. Hey, we're in New York today. And it it generated interest from an employment perspective as well. Um, and then once, once we made that decision, the traction from that point, it, it just supercharged our growth and, you know, becoming a specialist really was one of the initial pivot points that I think just supercharged where we went as a business. But it's easier said than done. A lot of people, you know, know they should probably specialize, but in particular in environments like we find ourselves in today, where the economy might be getting a little shaky, they take the position, look, I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, beggars can't be choosers. I can't be selective here. I need the cash. Um, you know, I'm going to take, take what I can and, and maybe I'll, I'll kind of have my cake and eat it too. And, and I'll, I'll say I have a specialty, but, but in the back door, I'll kind of take whatever comers. You avoided that temptation. It sounded like after this 2015 sort of moment, yeah. what's, what was your secret to staying disciplined? 
It's a great question. And bear in mind, before we did it, I had six, seven years of not staying disciplined. So I knew, <laughs> I knew what the other side of the coin looked like. Um, Which sounds to me, Ramon, like it was clients leaving as fast as you could win them. So, so not super satisfied clients. What, what, are, what are the other downsides of not being specialized? I think the one thing that I, I struggle is that you almost felt like you were having to re, you had to learn a new industry every day. And I, and I mm. found that very, it's, to an extent, it's quite exciting, but you had to be a specialist on this sector and then this sector and this sector. And what we found and the reason we stayed disciplined is when we said no to things, it allowed us to focus the attention on the stuff we wanted to say yes to. So as a consequence of that, John, our conversion rate went up because we were able to focus time, energy and resources on the right kind of opportunities. The other thing I would say is it brought great clarity to the business. So, you know, which events are you going to? What media are you consuming? You know, all, how do, you know, how do we talk about ourselves on our website? What do we do from a marketing perspective? Who do we hire? It became less general and much more narrow, which in a sense is restrictive. And that's the challenge with it. It's kind of like, it narrows everything, but it, within that, then it also creates opportunity and you get creative within those those boundaries. And certainly that that's what worked for us. And it, it wasn't without challenge by any stretch of the imagination, but at the same time, you know, it it no doubt helped us just become, you know, you know, Seth Godin uses the phrase, you know, become meaningfully specific. That's exactly what we did. So to our to to our potential clients they would find us online and be like, oh my God, I cannot believe an agency like you exists. I, I, there was someone who wants, in fact, still a client today, seven years on. I remember she said to me, I cannot believe there is an agency that lives in the trenches of our industry and knows our jargon, knows our language, knows the regulations. And that, and that's, you know, that's one of the barriers to entry, I suppose, in this industry is we have to, the salaries are higher. It's a global marketplace. It's very specialist. You know, you you can't just blag your way into this. We've seen companies try and they come and fail. Like, you know, and, you know, I think it took us six, seven years to get taken seriously in the sector. And that's the other thing is it takes patience and discipline. And the pharmaceutical and biotech sector is, is notoriously conservative. So they don't just randomly pick vendors without doing their diligence. And, uh, and around that 2015, 16 time, 2016, we won two big clients, one in the UK, uh, one in Sweden and one in the US. And they were both listed companies on the stock exchange in there, in one on the NASDAQ and one in, in Sweden. And for me, that would felt like a, oh, you know, this is real, we are, we are really, we have arrived. And that, that was a bit of a domino effect because once we had that level of credibility, we had some really big brands within the sector, relatively speaking, these are not household brands, but the types yeah, of brands yeah. that, people were like, well, all right, okay, you're working with you know this company. Um, and that then allowed us to, I suppose, you know, create case studies and all that kind of stuff. And and then obviously since then, John, is it's like anything, you know, our you know, we started life actually very focused on content and PR. And then we've evolved to a full service type agency because what we found is our clients kind of want us to do everything for them because yeah. You know what it's like, you know, you don't want 50 suppliers that you having to manage and vendors or agency partners because it's messy. And so we, what we find is we're often the preferred kind of agency of record for our clients, which is a, a great place to be. Yeah. And so for folks listening, you know, you can specialize in 
what you offer, i.e. just social, just, you know, content or who you offer it to. And in your case, Ramon, it sounds like you chose to, to really focus in on who, i.e. The, the kind of supply chain in the pharma space, but went broad in terms of what you offered them. Yeah, and exactly. But also the supply chain is, the ecosystem is very broad. So if you, I mean, a way of thinking about this, John, is, you know, molecules are discovered and then they might end up in a drug product 12 years later. So they all, they go through this process and they go through clinical trials. You know, there's discovery, there's preclinical, there's then the stages of clinical trials. Sure. There's then getting a product to market. And that, that supply chain and that ecosystem involves so many companies and so many suppliers and the trends in the real kind of um, head, uh, tailwinds over the last few years have been big pharma companies have outsourced more and more. And then bio, and biotech companies are very well funded and then they outsource everything. So effectively, right. you've got this wave of sh- like this kind of shift towards outsourcing and the, those clients are our clients. So the pool, the pool of clients is, is, has increased, their values increased their, and it's a very fragmented market as well. So for us, it, it provided lots of opportunity. I could hear some, you know, the, the skeptic saying, okay, I get it, improved your you know, conversion rate. It made it easier to hire employees. It made it a harder barrier to entry. But what about the TAM? You know, TAM, that acronym is investor speak for total addressable market, right? And companies with a huge TAM get better valuations. And so I can hear some people saying, ah, but you know, if you specialize in such a tiny little corner of the world, you're really putting a limit on time, you know, how big you could get. I mean, did you think about your TAM, your total addressable market? And, and was that part of the calculus here? Not until the process. And actually, mm. what was fascinating- The sale process, you mean? The sale process. And actually, yeah. so we, we, as part of the, and we'll, we'll, you know, it'd be great when we get into the, the, the nuts and bolts of the process, but we, we did commercial diligence from our side about the size of the market. And then the, the ultimate kind of investor did, did the same. And it's hundreds of millions of, uh, sorry, hundreds of billions of dollars, the market that we operate. And it's not- a, In terms of turnover. It, in, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge market, like value-wise. You know, so if you look at the bit that we play in, conservatively, you're probably looking at $200 billion today, and it's growing 10% year on year. So the so total- So the So, you know, I suppose it comes back to your understanding, you know, the type of people that were interested in us knew that they knew this market and that was part of the positioning piece which we'll go on to talk about but um, and and it and it was we never really thought about it because we were just growing and having fun right you know we're a very fast growing business and we were just like man this is cool and let's just keep going let's keep investing and you know you know being owner managed and just seeing the opportunity you just kind of go for it right and so that's all we've done for the last that last few years and we just hit the market at the right time that the market was kind of growing and continuing growing. And then COVID added to that as well. I, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Before we go there, 2015, what was your turnover roughly when you made this pivot to specialize? I, I mean, it was probably a, a few, I mean, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think in dollars terms, um, maybe 500,000 pounds, like pretty small, okay. maybe, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Six seven hundred thousand dollars, and you know, yeah. without number without of employees, just, 
ballpark. So we would have been about twenty people then. Okay, so pretty pretty small, growing and predominantly UK based at the time, and and obviously we've we can go on and talk about you know, adding the US element, which is also key. And and how big did you get before you decided to run a process, like in terms of revenue, turnover, number about of employees? About ten whatever. times, about ten t- times bigger than that. So actually, so um, got it. So yeah, we'll be yeah. So we'll be ten million dollars plus this year, but we weren't mm-hmm. last year. But and a big, a couple of big pivot points or inflection points from then to now, which worth noting because I know you've covered them in your podcast before. Uh, we got one. We got an investor on board in 2017, who was actually. <laughs> you asked me before, John, who uh, how I got into this sector. The lady that owned that business is a lady called Fiona Cruikshank, and her and I built a great friendship over the years. And she mentored me, and she was my boss, and she she built and sold companies, and and she ended up investing in the business in 2017. This wasn't a uh, you know running a process. This was a Hey, do you want to invest in a company? Because it's getting a bit serious. And, uh, and it actually came off the back of someone. Someone took me for coffee, a big agency group owner, and asked me if they could buy the business. And I was like, what? You want to buy my little company? I was just in shock. And then I told, I ran straight to Fiona. I'm like, oh my God, someone wants to buy the company. And she's like, ooh, this is fun. This is validation that you must be doing something right. And so Fee invested in the business um, you know, back then. And it wasn't necessarily driven by return for her. It was just the relationship that we had. But what she brought was that level of experience. You know, I like to say, you know, brought great hairs and experience and, and helped us navigate and think big. Um, so that was one big inflection point. Wow. So Fiona came in and and that's a that's a, a big deal for a lot of entrepreneurs to to all of a sudden have an investor because when it's just you, I mean, you can you can do as you like, but then when you've got an investor, that that changes things. How did it change it for you? Um, as I mentioned before, I think it just made us think a lot bigger. It made us professionalize. Um, you know, we started thinking about things with a longer lead time rather than hey, what what's next month going to look like? You Give know, an example of how it professionalized. Like, I'd, I'd be curious to know because yeah. I think uh, listeners would would be curious. Many would be one hundred percent owner operating, but businesses listening to this and have kind of contemplated bringing an outside investor. But I'd love to hear a specific example of how Fiona professionalized the business, like very specific. It would be great. Yeah, so we put we put a management team in place. So we developed mm-hmm. like a management team, and then we brought in a managing director. So effectively, mm-hmm. we we hired a CEO. And I'll, I'll come on to why that was important in a, in a second. And then we eventually added a board structure as well. And then there was governance around things like um, making sure we had like um, looking at diversity policies, we had a be- better recruitment. So, you know, it was things like that, which were kind of like done hand to mouth rather than actually with any proactive thought. The other thing that she did with me, is, which is a task I would massively suggest your listeners, if they're in similar position I was, is she did it did think this thing where we wrote down all the things that take up my time and actually realized that I was doing like 10, 10 people's job and then worked out, well, where am I really valuable to the business? And it was, you know, the relationships, the business development, the high end client relations. And then we, up the next year, we're like, right, we've got to get rid of the whole, the rest of it. It's got to be delegated. It's got to be eliminated or it's got to be automated in some way. 
And one of the key things that was part of that is in 2000, at the end of 2018, so about 18 months later, um, we decided that we were going to set up an office in the US. So in Boston, in Boston, I suppose for your listeners is, it's like the epicenter of drug development yeah, in, in pharmacy modern, capital. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, and so I just, I decided, uh, that I was actually going to move there with my wife and two kids at the time and, and go and set up the U S business. And it almost, it didn't force our hand, but it, it kind of was a, it was a good opportunity then to bring in a CEO and a manage like a managing director effectively. And what that allowed me to do was hand over all the operations piece, because, you know, as you know, John, when you're scaling a business, it's all the other stuff that comes with scaling a business that actually is the stuff that suffocates entrepreneurs, I, I find. And so what that allowed us to do was bring someone in, a lady called Emma, who's, our, who's you know, who runs the business day to day. And again, that would never have happened if, if Fiona had come into the bit, if not come into the business. What's the secret to delegating? Because a lot of people listening will say, yeah, yeah, I know I need to delegate, but nobody does it as well as I do. So I'm, I'm just going to hang on to it. I still do that now, by the way. Um, I think you, you have to just get over yourself a little bit is my biggest advice. You what did have. you do? So what I did is actually I, I realized that I could see it in dollar terms that actually if I spent my time over here and not over here, this business is grow, is going to grow. And the best example I've got, and I can't put this down to just me, John, but you know, in the time I went, I moved to the US in at the start of 2019, I then returned at the end of 2021. We were five times the size of company in that time. So we went mm. fivefold in less than three years. So and there are so many factors that went into that, but I can tell you now the fa- fact that I wasn't running operations, caring about the finance system, the HR systems, that involved in recruitment, doing line management, it freed me up to do all the other stuff, you know, be a thought leader to the business, think about the strategy, think about client client experience. And I suspect, you know, I don't listen to your show, obviously, in most of your episodes. So I know that the majority of your listeners are entrepreneurs that are, are often very charismatic they're often great with customers they're great with the you know not all of them but the majority are extroverts and it was time spent doing one thing is you know at the expense of something else but what i realized it was that time that time spent doing the stuff that really was valuable the return on investment for the business was so much higher than me doing i don't know looking at the weekly timesheet systems or right, right, all right, that right. kind of stuff sort of putting a value on your time and then identifying where you could get the highest leverage for it made makes a ton of sense. How did you structure Emma's compensation as a as a sort of managing director? I mean, a lot of people are struggling with this like do I give them equity? Do I give them, you know, uh, profit sharing or like yeah. how did you choose to approach Emma's comp? So we we took a a more basic approach which was we just had a very high salary so you know okay. and and obviously and it still works for the business so i have to be mindful but you know it was a <laughs> it was a higher salary than i was paying myself at the time so just to give it while i was in the uk and um, we used a recruitment company to help us I, emma didn't actually come through the recruitment company emma and i we knew of each other and i and we were on an airplane together at some point in time going to boston because she was in the pharmaceutical sector 
and which originally that's how Emma ended up in the business. But it was a really high salary. Emma, I know when she started, we talked about equity and we said not for the next couple of years. Again, you know, at the time, John, like we didn't ever think we were going to like a sale process and an investment and acquisition. These words just, we, uh, it never crossed my mind. I was not, mm. I should have read your book, you know, your first book, <laughs> but it just, I just couldn't, I couldn't, it was never the plan. I'd never planned to build a company to sell it or anything like that. I never bought So what changed? Much. What triggered you to want to sell? So I think at the end of 2020, I'm sure you can, you know, when you've got kids as well, like, you know, that was a, that was an interesting year for a lot of us in terms of going through COVID and our third son was born. We were living in Boston in the U S at the time. So the U S office and setup was going, going really well, but you know, it was in the year 11, year 12 of doing this. And, you know, we, you know, we, our average year on year growth in the last few years has been 55% year on year. Like, like it takes its toll. And that's in the last few years, you know, you add the other seven years on top of that. Like it, yeah. I felt like it was really taking its toll on, not me from a health perspective. It was just kind of a, you know, kind of what's the point in all this. And interestingly, because I started writing my book around that time. And part of that was quite cathartic because it was kind of like, well, why am I doing this? What? you know, I'm trying to share these things with other people and my journey. And the other thing is just my wealth all lived in the business, John. I didn't take anything out of the business. And, you know, one thing I was mindful of, you know, and I'm I'm part of other agency communities. I've seen, you know, I just turned 40 at the time or or just was about to turn 40. I could see other agency owners in their 50s and 60s really struggling to sell their agencies, really thinking about or, or have health problems or, you know, or spouses or get sick and watching them try to navigate that. I kind of, I felt like I didn't want to be in that position in 15, 20 years time. And you know, ultimately, I just needed to take some chips off the table. And, and it felt like at the time I had more to lose than I had to gain which I'm not actually sure is true because I think our business will continue to grow and, and it will do for the next few years. But at an individual level, it was almost like a, it just felt like the right time and business was going real. There's almost three elements. There was like the personal stuff. Business was booming, profitable, very hot, strong growth, good, strong EBITDA. Um, you know, you want to, you want to, you must feel like, oh my God, my luck's going to run out. You know, you have this mm. like fear at the back of your mind. And the other thing, as I mentioned as well, John, like the market that we were in was was just doing this and continuing to grow. And, you know, I don't know how long the market will continue to go at this pace. And so for me, um, you know, just to give some context to your listening. So our clients, the ones in this sector, you know, we're seeing multiples in that sector for of 25, 25 plus 35 plus. These are not SaaS businesses, by the way. These are manufacturing companies. These are service businesses. These are research business, packaging businesses. So the multiples in our client sector are absolutely off the chart. And that actually trickles down into what we do because we had positioned ourselves as, hey, we're an expert in this space. Like that's what we do. So I kind of knew we had, I suppose, the market factor, market's growing, business is doing well. And I'm sitting there thinking, I can't carry this risk for the rest of my life. And and, and we, we one thing we did actually, John, is we did um we I mean the entrepreneurial operating system EOS, which I know mm-hmm. has come up a few times. We implemented that during 2021 and or 2020-2021. And what again was quite apparent from that process is that's the first time we'd put a plan 
together beyond one year. So we had this three-year plan and a five-year plan and a 10-year plan. And as exciting as it is, and it still is our plan now, I was sitting there thinking, man, I am rolling the dice every year. And I know that's a silly, to an extent, it's a bit of a silly thing to think, but you know, it doesn't matter how well the business do. And I knew it was the business's wealth effectively continuing to grow and build. Um, and you know, it just felt like the right time to, to I suppose, realize some of that value. Um, which is that? Does that make I don't sense? know how much. Of, yeah, totally. Yes, it does. Um, I don't know how much of this you can share. So just to tell me what you can and can't share. But roughly, how many employees were you at in twenty twenty? So we were at about uh, forty to forty, forty to forty five. Um, so in, in fact, we, we are us. Staff count almost doubled in 2020, while everyone, while the world was disappearing and gone. And we, and I, and I tell you what we did do, John. In April 2020, we decided as a board we were going to be really bullish and we were going to go for it. We, we, because I was crapping myself at the time, but we felt there was an opportunity for us, our clients. We need us to be there, to be robust, to be strong. And we doubled down and we believed in the market. And I'm so great. And that was Fiona, by the mm. way. Fiona was like, "No, I've seen this before." this is our time. This is our time to double down and having someone with that experience and we went for it. And while other people were happy to take the government money and all that kind of stuff, we employed people. We didn't let anyone go and all that kind of stuff. I can imagine that'd be difficult because it's one thing for Fiona, who's wealthy and has other interests to say, yeah, we got to double down. And then on the other side, you're like, oh, hold on a second. Like my entire, my entire wealth is sucked up in this company. It, it, it was, but you know, we did have money in the bank and that was the other thing. Like we'd always run this business to be very profitable. And so the other thing for me, it was kind of like, quite honestly, my number one aim was to keep everyone in the job. I didn't want to let yeah. one person go other than like so, you know, for someone having a bad performer, like, you know, cause you just didn't, we didn't know what was going to happen in 2020. That was the thing, but we ethically, we knew we had enough money in the bank to just keep everyone in a job. And that was, that was important to me. Great. So kind of 40 to 50 employees, uh, revenue, profitability, like any of that you could share? So I, can't, I mean, I think we more or less doubled in 2020, not quite double, but you know, EBITDA wise, you know, where uh, we, you know, it's not unusual for me, us to make 30%, you know, in terms of, you know, it, it does obviously widely differ, but we've always been a pretty profitable business because we've managed cash and so we've managed our costs quite quite well. 30% we on revenue. Yeah. Yeah. Which So what kind know, of revenue would you be at at that time, ballpark? 2020, I think we would have been about 5 million quid, four to 5 million pound. So whatever that is in, in dollars, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So that gives folks a, a bit of a sense. So, so yeah, so backing into that, you know, this was a huge amount of money that was at risk, if you will, that you were gambling with essentially. Yeah, yeah, it didn't, and it's never felt like gambling up until a point where you've got a lot of chips on the table because you because it's the excitement and fun of of just growing a business and seeing where it goes. And but it kept it definitely got to a point where it was kind of like, wow, we are doing pretty well as a business, and I'm not necessarily we as a family, and we're very you know we're fine, you know, it's not like we're living on the you know you know on the breadline or anything. But there is an element of you know I've got three young kids, and it's like well. Sure. I have to, you have to fight that balance. And that's what ultimately led us to, you know, running a process in, in 2020. Was there, was there any, I, I heard the, um, 
the milestone birthday of turning 40, I've heard that can be destabilizing is probably a melodramatic or hyperbolic <laughs> word, but it can, it can make people reflect a little bit. You mentioned 40 was a big deal for you. Was there anything else that, and some of these, seeing some of these older uh, agency owners, do, do you remember if there was a moment in time or a conversation or a book you read or whatever that, that really made you think, geez, I'm, I'm, I'm risking a lot here. There, there wasn't, there wasn't one, there wasn't like a straw that, broke the mm. camel's back as opposed to just it was like a a culmination of all this stuff and yeah. around and in 2019 i think the start of 2019 i met the guy a gentleman called james west who who ultimately ended up being the broker for us and he definitely planted the seed of hey you know he said you know when agencies get to a certain size they're making certain money like this is what the multiples look like and so i what did he say what was so his ball, what he talked about was, you know, when a business is making half to half a million pound, um, you know, it would get say five, five, six EBITDA. And if you're getting, depends on the specialism, obviously the market that it's in, but you know, and when it goes to a million pound, you can be up to seven, eight, and then, you know, you go up to a couple of million and it then changes, you go up to 3 million, then it then changes. And there's these 5 million, then is a big inflection point from an EBITDA perspective. Obviously we were nowhere near that level of scale, but for us i can i could see one of these inflection points happening in 2021 and it was kind of and you know i also read I, i'd listened to a few podcasts and i'd read a few things about other agency owners that had either sold their businesses or they'd done a p investment or they'd done a management buyout or they'd done it i think it's called epos where uh, uh esop sorry where the, the staff buy the business and so i yeah. kind of i'm I'm an avid learner, so I do listen to a lot. I mean, as I said, I've listened to all your podcasts pretty much. Like, I do listen to a lot of things and as a way of just digesting that. And so that was another thing is I kind of figured that the business is probably worth quite a bit, and in which turns out to be true. Yeah. So where does it go from there? So it's 2020. All these things happen. Did you, did you hire James? Did he yeah. stop it? What, what happened? Yeah. So... We're into 20, so we'd have been at the start of 2021. So, so Fiona and I, um, we met a couple of, we met a few kind of potential investment brokers. So James, James was working for a company called Lincoln International by this point. And so we, we spoke to James and then we spoke to a couple of others as well. And, you know, one thing I did, uh, which you know, good, I know you like kind of <laughs> tangible tactics is yeah. when I, when I, uh, when I, I did the interviews and pitch with them. You know, I asked them to role play with me. I said, okay, so you've met me at an event, describe my company. Tell me what we do. Tell me who my customers are. And we did this and, and you know, you said right at the start, John, what we do is really super niche. And so what was interesting was, did they really understand or did they not understand? And, and what I found was James nailed his pitch. He, and I, mm. I remember laughing saying, I could not have explained us better. And he, you know, he's a he's an odd kind of combination. He's a pharmacist by trade, and he ended up being in corporate finance and he was an accountant. So James mm. kind of, um, and he, he knew marketing agencies and he knew our space, which is just, I mean, talk about a niche and a niche and a niche is incredible. And so we, we hired Lincoln and then we, then we spoke to a couple of lawyers and, we hired a firm in uh, in the UK called Waitmans, who you know were were fantastic. And then I read quite a lot about the role of um, 
your broker versus the lawyer. And, and one thing that stuck with me, which again, it might be useful is, you know, I remember the first day I studied PR and they always talked about PR was, you know, um, it's two words, it's protection and promotion. That's what PR is. And it, I kept coming back to that with my broker and my lawyer. It's the same two Ps. You are there to promote us and you are there to protect us. And they have to work. When you say you, you're referring to the brokers there to promote and the lawyers there 100%. to protect. 100%. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they have they are, both you personally, but also the business as well. And hmm. and it just, it just, I mean, they're completely unrelated in terms of like the PR learning, but those two Ps kind of came back and they had to work as a bit of a yin and yang. And, and around that time as well, I, um, so we, this was in probably February, March, 2021. And then in May, I came back to the UK. It was the first time we'd been back during COVID because it was the first time we could come back to the UK. Um, and at that point, I t- we told um, Emma, the managing director, and Barry, who is the kind of CFO, financial director. And it was obviously a bit of a shock to those guys because it had never been discussed before. It was a very personal decision. My wife was also a minor shareholder as well. Just historically, she'd been a shareholder. So, you know, I, I can't give percentages away, but effectively my wife and I own the majority, majority of the of the business. And so um and but then those guys were incentivized as well. So one thing I again I think I probably learned it from one of your podcasts was guys, this is what we're doing. We've appointed a broker, we've appointed the lawyers, um, and I effectively incentivized them by enterprise value. So the higher value we get the business, this is your percentage in terms of bonus and and I think they would have done a brilliant job without it because they're so diligent and professional, but it meant that, they, I mean, they had to put in some serious hours during the process, but it meant that they were rewarded rightly for for their work. And again, I can, I don't think it, I don't think necessarily they would have worked any less hard or anything like that, but it felt like a re, they, they benefited from ultimately the value that we were able to get so, from the business. So you treated, you treat, uh, so it was, di- uh, Emma and Derek, uh, Barry, Barry, sorry, Barry, yeah, forgive yeah. me. Uh, so you treated it almost like a success bonus, if I'm understanding correctly. So if we get X million for the business, you get Y. If we get two X million for the business, you get whatever, yeah, X or whatever. Yeah. It was basically a bonus, though. You didn't give them. Uh, not equity. equity no, no, it, it was, was a, it was too, it was it's complicated to do it at that point as well from a tax perspective. And so it was very much yeah. based on, Hey, if, if the business is valued at X, then you get Y if it's valued at X and irrespective of the deal structure, what they are incentivized by is if we have a really good performing business, it will lead to the value that will, that will impact the valuation. And there are lots of factors and, that go into evaluation, obviously. But. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to, I was just going to go there because, you know, the question is like cash versus equity versus, you know, whatever. When you talked to, when you structured that for Barry and Emma, was it enterprise value? Uh, so that it, it was structured based on the total value, yeah. regardless of whether you received cash or exactly. Equity, it was, or was it, it was based on the total value because okay. they could not have controlled deal values. And, and ultimately, you know, for the, we are not a complicated business. You know, we don't have tons of assets and, you know, what, you know, machinery or anything like that. So for us, John, you know, it was growth and EBITDA was well in, it was in that, in, in a solid management team and structure at a leadership level, which the EOS allowed us to do and um, making sure that was all robust and solid was, was no doubt 
contribute towards whatever the ultimate could you know we in in this type of business like the most important factors are growth and EBITDA for, EBITDA for, for service businesses yeah. is and you know we were showing a really healthy kind of trailing um kind of 12 months and 18 months and it was going up and up and up and um, and it, the, the irony is actually 2021 was not as good as we hoped it would be. And that was, that was, there's so many factors that go into that, but um, it was still a pretty, you know, for our, our expectations are so high. It just was a bit lower than we would have budgeted, but nevertheless, you know, we were you know, there or thereabouts. And, you know, when you do adjustments and things like that, when it comes to, you know, the business valuation and that type of thing. I suppose one of the things that really worked for us is the the kind of last, the six months um, at the end of last year and the six months of this year, 2022, we've had our best six months ever. <laughs> so we, you know, there's, and again, one of your guests, I think, don't take your eyes off the trading and the business performance while you're doing this because it's incredibly distracting. And we were trading really, really well in the last quarter of 21 and in this first quarter of 22. And I think that that limited that any retrading sure. or anything like that. So, yeah. 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 That's great. That's fantastic. So I want to go back to sort of James's process. So mm-hmm. you get Barry and Emma on board. They've got the success bonus tied to the enterprise value. Uh, like, what was the appetite like for the business? Did, did you get multiple offers? Did, yeah. Like, what was that process like? So we went, you know, we did the, the, you know, the traditional process, which I found very traditional. I was like, why don't we do videos? And, <laughs> and we did like, it's all very paper-based. And we send an, we send an, an IM or a flyer. So we did coffee meetings and then we did the IM or the, uh, the CIM, I think it's called. The information stage. memorandum yeah. or yeah, confidential information memorandum. Yeah. And then that went to like a, a list of, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 companies, um, pretty, pretty narrow. And the reason and were being, those strategic acquirers or were those private bit of, equity groups? Bit of like, both, bit of both. We okay. just didn't know at the time what, what this would look like. And I didn't even really know what, what they would look like. And what 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 I thought we would what we wanted was was also competition. And we wanted um different options on the table. And that was the advice that the James and the guys gave us, like, you know, keep it white, keep it white in a broad net at this stage. Um, mm-hmm. And of the, I suppose, 25, 30 or so that they approached, I'm pretty sure we met a good 20 of them. And wow. what what was one of the things I think you know people need to think about when they're going through this process. And there are things that we, if I did it again, I would do differently. But the one thing I think we got really right was how we positioned the business. And it's like, it is marketing. There's a huge marketing component to this, which is, you know, we were not positioning ourselves as a marketing business. We were positioning ourselves as a specialist in this sector. And this sector was where is where the real value is. Um, we also, you know, we have a lot of retained revenue. And again, that is a huge value add to potential buyers. And Retained revenue being recurring revenue? Recurring revenue, revenue effectively. Contracts. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, you it. know, it's not quite subscription as a SaaS business, but, you know, we have 12, 18, 24-month contracts with companies you know, that they're going to pay X amount of dollars, uh, you know, a, a month. And again, that kind of forward visibility of cash flow is, is these guys love that, that kind of things. And Ramon, I'm, I'm interested in, in how you positioned the company as a specialist in the pharmaceutical e- ecosystem. You know, th- we talk a lot about this idea on the podcast is, is, you know, 
part of what you've got to do is lodge yourself in the mind of an acquirer as a high value company and not get stuck in the discount bin in their mind, yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. you know, the traditional, you know, oh, it's a shitty little agency, three times earnings, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like you actively said, that's not how we're going to position this company. So I'd be curious to know what specific tactics you used to position yourself in that way? Like what words did you use? What, what did you have on your website? What did you have in the SIM that was intentional? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, great question, by the way, because I think this is kind of the nuts and bolts of a lot of this is, you know, when we presented, we talked about the, you know, total addressable model. We didn't use that phrase, but we're like, guys, this is where we play. We play in this market. This market's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. It's growing year on year. We're a tiny piece of this market and look at where we can go. In addition to that, you know, healthy EBITDA, very healthy growth, really, really chunky enterprise level clients, um, a lot of private equity backed clients. So language, well-funded, stable companies that don't go out of business. Our clients, touch wood, do not go out of business. These are very well-run business. Then you add in the conversion rate, the sector expertise, we ticked a lot of boxes for the potential acquirers. And, and one of the, the PE guys who, um, uh, at North Edge, who we, you know, we ultimately partner with, he uses a great phrase that I never knew. He, says, he said, think of it like dials. He says, you know, you've got all these, um, you know, whether it's growth or EBITDA or geographic expansion, they're all dials and you want to try and move, you want to try and get these dials as close to 10 as possible, all of them. <laughs> and, it, and we, you know, and I remember reading some blogs and, you know, where like what makes, you know, what makes an agency valuable and there's like eight or 10 things. And we were really strong on most of them and we knew that. So it was kind of music to the ears. And, and again, I don't know whether it was from one of your a book or, or something like that, but I had this phrase that, you know, we are the hot girl at the dance right now, you know, and, and I don't, and I don't, and that, that was in my mind, which is, you know, you, <laughs> and the irony is these, these companies see so many companies like you, and you, but, but if I'd thought like, oh my God, we're one in a hundred, I would have been, I wouldn't have gone in with the same, I suppose we wouldn't have gone in with the same confidence, but we were like, guys, we're, we're a great business. Like we're, a, we're really good at what we do. And we've got a fantastic business. Like, of course you want to buy us. Of course you want to invest in us. <laughs> like, which sounds like arrogant, but it, you have, you have to have that confidence. And one thing that, I mean, I did, which um, it sounds very manipulative now, but we, I, we looked specifically also at um, at that period of time in putting in for like awards and listings, which we hadn't really done before, because I put my mind in the the, the mind of the acquirer and thought they're going to Google us, they're going to go looking for us, and in twenty twenty was twenty twenty or twenty twenty one twenty twenty one we the, we were the fastest growing communications agency in the UK. Okay, so and some of these guys and girls have big egos. And they, they, they want number one on the list and it's, it's marketing. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, you, I wanted them feeling like, oh my God, we are uncovering an absolute gem of a business here. I can't, you know, I, this is the one. And I think all of these contributing factors were probably why we got so much interest. And, um, and we ended up having, I think we had several bids. I can't remember. I can't remember. It's quite a few though. I think we had like, Good handful of bids from an LOI perspective, and more than two, less than five, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, right in that, right in that ballpark. Yeah. Um, yeah. and they were all, they were all 
the level where we wanted them to be. Um, you know, we didn't have any low ball, crazy low ball bids. Um, what were you hoping for in terms of a multiple of EBITDA? Um, I think for us, you know, we we knew what the market. We again, if you look at marketing agencies, we you know you talk, you've had guests on in your your podcast and talk about you know six, seven, eight. I firmly believe we could get a double double digit multiple, and and we did actually. We had a we had a, a we had a few offers that were at, I think we had two offers, but only three that were a double digit level. Um, wow! And a few. it was. It's an amazing, um, you know, it's a thing, you know, it's only worth what someone prepared to pay for it. And I appreciate the, you know, the LOI stage, things can still go well because you've got the diligence to come and all that kind of stuff. But it is one of the most surreal moments when you look at these documents and you see the amount of value that people place against your business is, honestly, as a as a accidental entrepreneur, it is an incredibly humbling moment, I would say, John. And I know you've had guests say the same, but I remember sitting there and I went to my wife and she was just like, is this a joke? And I was like, I know, it's crazy, isn't it? But, but we, you know, one thing I didn't say, John, at all points during this journey, I was prepared to walk away. There's one thing in this period, like we didn't have to do this transaction. We didn't have to do this at all. And that meant we were doing all of this from a position of strength. Even at the last minute, I'm happy to talk about when you, you do your <laughs> um, your fast questions yeah, towards the end. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like I was always prepared to walk away because I, I, I believe in the business. I believe in my team. I believe in the market. And that meant you were more bullish, I, I think. But yeah, but we were, we were very, I was very grateful to get, you know, offers and, and stuff like that. And then obviously then there were all PE offers, by the way, we... Okay, that was yeah. I was going to ask you: Did you get a strategic or, or all PE offers, and and were they structured mostly with a PE offer? It's sort of like, here's the valuation we want you to, you know, we'll buy sixty percent, and we want you to roll forty yeah. percent of your equity. Was it sort of a sixty forty equity split, or yeah? So how did I they mean, structure? So a bit of a bit of both actually. So on the trade side, one thing we realized as we went through the process is. Um, I didn't think trade was going to be a strategic is going to be a good fit for us. None of them you did because, not think. No. And the reason being is, you know, most of them wanted to tie me in to say a five year earnout or a th- like, and I was just like, oh, I don't really fancy doing that. And even though I'm not operationally running the business day to day, I just, I didn't fancy it. And I also, I think it really opened my eyes to, the opportunity with private equity i'd seen the bad side of private equity like like prior to this process and i was quite skeptical but actually i was pleasantly surprised and i did my digging on a lot of these PE firms and actually one thing what i liked about it was that you're kind of still a master of your own destiny like you you do retain kind of control of the business in terms of where it's going and what they kind of leave you to it as long whereas i could imagine a trade um, I just wouldn't have had the same outcome. And, and to your other question, John, they were all structured quite similar. I mean, there was a few quirks in, in the offers. They were all kind of, they all were pretty much, you know, percentage P, percentage me, and then equity, the sweet equity kind of percentage for the team. All of them had that similar kind of, kind of three um, kind of parts to it. Let me just help me understand that. So there's a, there was a, uh, a percentage that they were buying, like a, a basically, a, a, they're going to write you a check for a, a piece. The majority of, of, 
I'm assuming it was a majority recapitalization. No, it's a, it was a, it was a, it was a, they have a funny word for it. It's like a, uh, like a mine, a large minority stake is how they, so it was, yeah. So, Interesting. So they did not buy more controlling interests. You they bought so them. yeah. So I mean, I can't give the percentage away, but effectively, the the all the offers were quite similar in terms of like it meant that me and the private equity company had similar kind of sizes of equity, and then I there see. was okay. and then there was a remaining pot that would be there for like for the for the team or for the future for employees the and yeah. things like that. And um, some of the quirks in the structure and the offers were things like. Um, some of them had a deferred income. Some of them had, they were going to put debt on the business. Um, but the rollover piece that you mentioned is, you know, effectively, you know, they buy a chunk and then you're rolling over your, the, the, the other bit of the business that you own into the next three to five years or whatever that looks like. So you, you know, and me personally, like you are very invested and you are very much part of the journey. You know, I'm for, just turned 41. I'm not, at an age where I'm ready to like retire or anything like that, far from it. Like I, I'm so excited about where we're going. But, but yeah, it was it, and it was great. And at that point as well, John, what we did is we took two of the offers forward, so we didn't choose because what was what was quite interesting is you don't really know. And this was this was all virtual up to this point. It was at the end of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, we met them. We met a few of them in. Um, we eventually met them in person. <laughs> we were meant to fly. I mean, it's quite a t- t- funny story now, but in uh, at the end of 2021, it was November of time. I was meant I was meant to be on a flight to come and do all the the, the pitching in person to London. I was flying from Boston, London, and I got COVID the day before, oh. <laughs> so I had to do. It was one week, and I think we had six, 15 meetings or something in that week. When I was on Eastern Time. And I had to get up with, this was Delta COVID, you know, and I had to get, I had a 4 a.m., an 8.30 a.m., and then a, I can't remember, and it was brutal that weekend. Oh and it God. was, and then Emma, so Emma was in the office in London doing Herbit, and I was there virtually, like, dying, you know, doing the presentation. But um but we ended up so we ended up with two companies that we ultimately um I mean that we, we in a sense we ran them off against each other. But the other thing that we did is we got to know each other a bit bit better and and you know we they were doing a validation piece. They were started doing a bit of diligence, but we were getting to know them. Is this going to be a good culture fit? How does it all work? We then brought in a couple of the other team members by this point as well. So the other, um, so our head of commercial we brought in at this point as well. So because she was going to be key to it, and uh, and then you know we ended up ultimately it was difficult. I know we we were really fortunate, John, because I had two we had two options that. I would happily have gone with either, but I, but you know, ultimately it was my decision to go with a company called North Edge, and North Edge have got, um, you know, uh, the, we just like them as people. They were just very nice people, and they've got a great track record. They'd invested in life science agencies like us, which is effectively what they are. So they understood the niche. They were excited by the market, and um, you know, you could, you know, the I, you know, be, uh, the one of the phrases I, I've kept in mind throughout the entire process, John, is like, you know. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. To to someone and to both of these companies, they loved our business. They loved the business. They loved the market. They loved the team. They loved the culture. And so you had, and, and likewise, we liked both of them. And the guys that we went with, um, then their offer necess- wasn't necessarily the best offer actually financially. Um, I just felt 
they were a better fit for us at where we were the phase that we were at and they had done similar things with similar businesses and you know i I'd, I'd advise you know i reference checked big time like i went and spoke to uh, people that invest, companies had invested in what were they like and i kept i kept getting exactly the same words and and, and, and it was things like really nice guys you know big integrity um do as they say very reasonable and um and that that reassured me as we were going going through the process and then yeah and then we we did a i stole off one of your podcasts and the guy's name i can't remember but um the day i decided who we were going to go with i spoke to the managing partner of north edge and i also went for dinner with a couple of the guys and i shook their hand and i and i said i'm trusting there's a better off there's a bit a bit of a better off on the table but i'm going with you guys I'm going to trust there's going to be no retrading. And I, I stole that from one of your episodes. Yeah. And, yeah. But it, it, it felt very like, hinkly. yeah. And it, and it, it felt actually very symbolic, but it also felt very natural with the guys and they were, and fair play to, to the guys. Cause when they went through the diligence process and that was brutal, like, you know, I, nothing can prepare you. One thing I wish I'd done, John, and one of your guests talk, talked about as a lady on your show and she talked about she went and got there's a if you google like deloitte due diligence checklist i followed the instructions of this lady on your show and i got it and then i just left it in one of my notes and i never went back to it and honestly if i could have my time again i would have given that to my finance team and said go get this stuff now you know go do this um other other like quirks we did something called vendor assist and which is like a smaller version of vendor dd I think if we'd done vendor DD and due diligence, that would have saved us more time and pain in the diligence process. Uh, you know, as a, as a runner as well, John, like you, it felt like the last three miles of a marathon. That's what it felt mm. like. And, Good analogy. <laughs> and I kept on, my wife's a doctor and I kept saying to my wife, I was like, it's, it felt like you were going to the doctors, they were pulling your pants down, they were seeing a tiny little mole on your backside and being like, could that be cancer? Like that, that's, that's what I kept on. And it was like, it was like, it was so, it was so rational, but so unreasonable at times. And the the guys who did the diligence were, you know, it was a big fall um, and they were, they were, they were great. And I have to say, like, it was really well played. It was just, it was painful for everyone involved. And that's just the way it is. But um, they, one thing that said about us, it was PwC. They said that someone who's had that PwC or the accountants they used said that we were one of the cleanest businesses they'd ever come across. And That's you know, that, that for me personally was an incredible, we've always tried to do things the right way. We have signs all over office that say do the right thing. And that meant a lot to me that you had this external validation. Um, well, kudos to Barry for all the work he did. Oh my God, honestly, <laughs> there, was, there, was a, there was a day, John, and I don't know, Barry, Barry probably won't listen to this, but I was like, I remember saying, oh my God, I think he's going to throw himself off a bridge if he, I, he was just, it was incredible pressure, the, the financial director. Right. And, and one thing, again, I would say is like for, for, for other listeners who are going through this process or about to go through this process, you need people who know what they like. We had Emma, Emma, handle all of the the legal diligence barry handled all the financial diligence and actually that allowed me to retain a bit of headspace and actually focus on the business and clients but also just at times during the diligence picking up the phone and having a conversation with the other side was 
was a was a worthwhile thing to have because it you have to iron out you, i think you've mentioned before one thing we did in the diligence is we did the heads of terms right at the start so we ironed out all the big points right at the start so actually the diligence the challenge in the diligence was actually financial diligence and it was often working capital calculation and it's really really complicated even in a business like ours it's not as simple as people think um yeah. and that was yeah. and it was there was cash in the business so it was like how much of that cash is staying how much is coming out and things like that and these types of things were I, I, just for your listeners like it's it's more complicated than you think yeah, the, the working capital cal- calculation we've often talked about is the second most important number on a term sheet because it can have, especially for a service business, could have material impact on uh, uh, on on how much you know cash you're able to take out. Yeah, and and for folks listening, heads of terms is a UK expression that's similar to letter of intent in uh, in America. If, if if that's not a term you've heard before, but. It's a, it's a great story. So you ultimately got them to get through the due diligence process. Um, was there retrading? No, there wasn't. And what, what, one, thing, one thing I would say about the guys is their eventual interpretation of our EBITDA was lower than our, than our brokers, but they didn't move on the, the top line. So effectively- The multiple. The, well, no, no, they did. The multiple effectively, they paid a bit more of a multiple based on their EBITDA. But they stayed true to the top line number, which which I see, which I see, which tells you everything about who who they are. And so for for me again, that validated that these were people that were looking to do business the right way and for long term. And and you can argue the toss on on some of the the on the, some of the working capital calculations and adjustments. But at the end of the day, the top the main numbers weren't changing. Um, right. And so that was and then obviously you know. Well, one thing I didn't do, John, which, you know, I spent, I spent a good year and a half, I suppose, educating myself on this process and educating myself on M&A and the process, reading your books. And, um, you know, I run, I run for an hour every Sunday and for every Sunday I'd be running around Boston or the UK or wherever I was in the world, listening to your, your podcast comes out on a Saturday and I'd be listening to that. <laughs> and honest, and I, and again, like I wouldn't, for, for anyone listening, like, this is probably the biggest transaction you're ever going to make in your life. Like, like don't blag it, do your homework on it. Like lean it, really lean into it. It's honestly, I think it's the most enjoyable thing I've done in, in my business life. Like I really loved learning about the process. I loved the psychology of it. I loved, I mean, completion and we'll talk about completion day and all that kind of stuff. Like it was, it's an amazing journey for an entrepreneur that, to, to go through and something I'm so privileged to have done, but Honestly, don't, for any of your listeners, like, don't think you can just turn up and blag this. Like, you'll get out what you put in is my, my, my take on it. Blagging, for those who don't know that expression, sorry. the UK expression, is kind of like faking it. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I've been back in the UK. I've been back in the UK. Uh, and I'm, I'm blagging, forgotten. I love it. <laughs> you Brits have a word for everything. I love it. All right, let's get into the, the, the lightning round because uh, I'm sure uh, folks will be interested in your answer to these questions. So what is the slimiest, most underhanded thing you saw an acquirer do in the process of selling your company? Or try. So actually, it wasn't anything to do. It was nothing to do with the, the process we went through. But what one of the reasons we ended up in this process is we got approached. So you actually, I should have mentioned this before. You you met you know what you know 
what why did we start this process we got approached multiple times in 2020 of big agency groups and one of these agency groups there's a guy who obviously introduced us this is i'm not going to say the person's name because i think they've actually been a guest on your podcast and what they did is they, they their marketing materials would have us as a multiple of they would actually have us as a multiple of 14 or 12 or something crazy like that and this business they were involved in were like yeah we'd probably look at a four or six multiple <laughs> i was like are you actually joking <laughs> is this a joke and i honestly i laughed so, so we get this straight they're trading at 14 times and they're offering you four no, they're, like their marketing materials put out like oh if you are this size and this scale and you've got this going for you, your agency would be worth this but actually when they contacted us they were like, oh yeah, it was like in the four to six, but obviously I'd done my homework on who was sat on the board and what stuff they were putting into it. I was like, you might want to look at what you're saying <laughs> over here. So it was just yeah. sort of a bit slimy, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 maybe. for sure. Biggest mistake you made in the process of selling your company? Um, I think I'd wish we'd... I wish it's it's hot it's it's easy to say in hindsight, but I wish we'd started the process earlier because I think it takes by the time it comes to diligence, I think if you get your data in line earlier in the process, um even I wasn't sure at the start that we would do a private equity deal, but I wish I'd spoke to some of our P like friends in P that I've got and said, right, what do we need? What are we gonna need to have like 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 give us the nuts and bolts of stuff that matters? Yeah. And I think that preparation piece would have just that pain up front would have saved us a lot of pain later on in the process. Yeah, we'll we'll link up to the Deloitte uh, due diligence checklist yeah. uh, in the show notes at builtthesell.com so you can folks can get that. But that that's probably worth doing some pre-diligence in advance. Great, uh, great advice. What was the lowest point emotionally you reached in the process of selling? The the lowest point was actually around. So we moved back to the UK at the from Boston at the end of last year. And so it was around Christmas time and just the way our contracts are, we had a few big clients that were renewing their contracts. And for whatever reason, the renewals didn't come through at the end of the year. And obviously this was the time at which we just had two LOIs and we were going in the process. You know, you lose a couple of big clients at that point in time. I didn't have any worries that we could lose clients, but I remember sitting there thinking, oh my God, we've put all this time and effort in. We've got these offers sat on the table. If, you know, client X, Y, and Z don't renew. And it, I remember it, it was, it's, it's like jigsaw pieces. That's, it's like, and you're not in control of all the pieces. So it was, that was the thing that I think was the most, look, Low was probably too harsh a word. It just was, it was a stressful time because you had all this stuff going on. I didn't even tell you, John, no one knew. So my, apart from my wife, my family didn't know, my parents didn't know, my brothers didn't know, my best friends didn't know. I kept hmm. this really under the radar. And um, even the lawyer that I chose, we chose, we chose a lawyer specifically that we knew was not, I'm going to use a British word for you, not a gobby lawyer. He wasn't out, he, he's, this is not a lawyer that's out in the pub talking talking shop and because we didn't we, we work in the pharmaceuticals like the confidentiality is so important and so that kind of so i couldn't talk to anyone about it other than fiona and in emma and in the team i couldn't talk to anyone about it but it was stressful because you've got this 
potential transaction about to happen, but you're like, oh my God, these clients don't renew. We've got a huge problem, but thank God, you know, they, they renewed and we won a ton more business and yeah, we traded and, and did well, which, which, you know, if I, if I look back now, if we'd had a terrible January or February, that could have scuppered things as well. Yeah. What, what was the highest point emotionally that you reached along the journey? Um, completion day was amazing. And if you don't mind me indulging you in, in that 24 hours, because, please, um, it was funny because the week of completion was the week I listened to your podcast and I can't remember the guy's name and the guy had bought aeroplane, he bought an aeroplane, he buys aeroplanes. Um, and he, he said something, I think it was the same guy who said something like it was, he saw the number in his bank account and it was depressing because he was in an airport traveling and all that kind of stuff. And I said to my wife, I said, we make sure this doesn't happen, right? Let's be together. Um, so one thing I did is because we were coming out of COVID, obviously the start of this year, is I insisted on, everything was done by DocuSign, but I insisted that the share purchase agreement that we, we sign in person with, with the company. So it was about, two in the morning at the legal office and we'd done everything by DocuSign and we got these pictures taken. We had a glass of champagne and it was, it was amazing. And the guys from North edge, I was there with two of their partners and we all signed the documents together. And that was, that was a cool moment. And then that was like at two in the morning on completion day. And then in the morning, you know, we, um, <laughs> the, the lawyer sent you a text saying, uh, okay, try, like you have this weird completion call. I don't know if you, any of you guess. So the lawyers basically talk. They're like, yep, everything's done. Yep, everything's done. Complete, complete. And you're like, okay, is that it? And it's so <laughs> underwhelming. And then they were, they were said to me, I'm like, are you okay? And I was like, um, well, actually, I want to pull out of the deal. They were like, oh. I was like, I'm just kidding, guys. <laughs> um, but then that day then, so obviously we'd, so I'm kind of so that was the morning so we had the sign in at two in the morning with the completion call in the morning then you're just looking at you're refreshing your bank account like every two seconds and then then Duncan Duncan Reed who honestly is the the lawyer who led our side and even from the North Edge said it was one of the best lawyers they've come across he sent me a text saying okay funds are transferred and like five minutes I'm like the funds on there the funds on there like panic and then eventually I said to my wife apparently they're coming and we checked and it was just, uh, just like ridiculous. Like, well, how, how is there so much money in that bank account? And then what I'd arranged actually, John is, um, I was taking my brothers out for dinner that night and they didn't, I'm really close to my brothers and they didn't know any, anything. And so I did let my dad know a couple of weeks beforehand, but he's, he's in his eighties and I don't think he fully understood. And, uh, so we went for dinner, we had a couple of beers. Um, I told my wife's brothers and some of the family members and then we were sat, uh, and, you know, I, I don't come from wealth. I come from like, I've a pretty work, not working class as if we were, you know, living hand to mouth, but you know, we don't, we're not a millionaires or family or anything like that. And we, yeah. were sat, we went to a nice fancy restaurant. We had a couple of beers in, in Newcastle where, where, where we live. And I said to one of my brothers, I said to my brothers, I, I said, should we get some champagne? Should we get a bottle of champagne? And one of my brothers was like, who the hell do you think you are? And the other brother was like, well, if you're paying, yeah, just do it. It's like, it's like the, it shows you like the different personality types. And anyway, the champagne comes and then they pour the champagne and we said, cheers. And I went, oh, boys, by the way, um, I've got a, another motive here at night. And they were like, is, is, is Selena pregnant? I went, no. And they were like, are you moving back to America? I went, no. I was like, let me talk, you know, like classic brothers. <laughs> And then I, you know, I said to them, look, I, uh, I, you know, I sold a chunk of the business today and obviously Fiona exited 
Selena exited my wife as well. And I was like, your little brother, and I'm the youngest of three. I was like, your little brother is pretty wealthy now. And like, you know, they, they were, they, you know, they like, they were, they were in tears. Like they couldn't believe it. And, you know, we ended up getting stupidly drunk and having a brilliant night. And then, and what, which this is terrible. And I, once you've had a few drinks, so I should never do things like this when you're drinking. Uh, yeah. My mum and dad paid, my parents, like they're in the seventies and eighties. They're like, they have this little red Mercedes and they paid it off that day. And it was like, it was like 20,000 bucks. So I said, Ooh, let's have some fun. And I like, I just sent my mum 20,000 quid. <laughs> and then I went to see my parents that night. And I was like, and I told them, and I shouldn't have told them when I was, I'd had a few drinks. And my mum was showing my brother phone saying, something's happened with the bank account because the money we sent bounced back. And my brother was like, no, no, he sent the money. Um, so it was just this. And, I, and then I also arranged, um, it arranged for a big family dinner at a really this restaurant called Cafe Twenty One in, in Newcastle, which I worked washing dishes when I was sixteen. And then I became a waiter, got promoted to become a waiter. And I've gone back since and I know the guy that owns it and and I remember when I worked there when I was sixteen, I was like, What are people what do people do to eat in a restaurant like this? And then even when we went there about three or four years ago, there's a private dining area and I said to my wife, like, God, who are these people? You want these people? And I was like, I said to my wife, like, we are going to be these people now. I was like, we are going to, and, and I took my wife's family, my family, and my, my eldest brother has two nieces who live in London. They came up with their boyfriends. And then Fiona, who I mentioned, she's like, you know, soulmate and her husband, Neil, as well. And we just had this amazing dinner together. And everyone knew by this point, so it was just a celebration. And, and everyone just randomly did speeches, which was lovely. Like it, and it was, Honestly, it was one of the nicest kind of evenings ever. So that was the 20, 24 to 36 hour kind of window of completion wow. day. Yeah, it was fun. What an incredible, what an incredible experience. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy for you. Um, was there, were there any resources that I, you've been generous already about, about the book, so that's helpful, but any resources you use to sort of educate yourself about uh, the process? Like you mentioned, you're a big reader and yeah. a listener. So like, what else did you sort of consume? This is the best book ever that everyone should read. <laughs> so I'm not even joking. Like this, for people like me, like read John's book. I, I think I've listened to 300 plus of your podcasts and, and the deal we got is absolutely linked to the learnings that you and your community have shared. And I'm unbelievably grateful for you and your guests because like, you kind of virtually mentored me without ever even realizing it. And I think if people invest the time in listening to the stories and the anecdotes and the tactics and the strategies, they'll get a better deal and they'll, they'll get it right timing wise. Other, other things, obviously beyond your stuff. Um, there's a, there's a really, there's a, there's a book. There's a guy that wrote a book called, um, he wrote two books. One's called the exit playbook. And then he's written one called the private equity playbook. Um, okay, we'll link to those in the show notes as well. I, I, I'm not familiar with the emails, um, actually. And I, th th when we decided that we were going down the PE route, like for anyone that's looking, like it's a really, and there's an audiobook version of it as well, and I listen to the audiobook, and it's really useful in explaining how private equity works and how they make their money and what they look for and what it means for the business and the management team. And it comes from the perspective of a guy who was quite skeptical and ended up going on multiple rounds of private equity. Um, I read other books around the process and the exit strategy and, and things like that. And there's a few podcasts and stuff like that, but 
honestly, John, yours was the main one. And and um, I, there are a million business books I can probably recommend, but I think for what majority of your listeners are going to be very kind of well-read entrepreneurs that do their own thing. And I suppose my advice to all of them is just keep learning, right? Like never, ever stop learning and keep digesting because you all probably have brains that allow you to take on all this information. It's, it's a bit of a gift. <laughs> Last question. Was there, a, was there a trophy beyond the celebration dinner uh, at Cafe 21 that you that you uh, bought yourself? I'm not buying a Tesla. I can tell you that, like the rest of your guests. The most boring- <laughs> Right? You have listened to a lot of, of shows most, because that's honestly, like the most common it's the answer. Mo- it's the most boring car on the planet. So, so if I buy a car, it's going to be the British version of that, which is not electric, I can tell you. It's going to be a yeah, much fancier like a DB7 version. with some huge motor. Uh, well, and so we've, we've, we've booked, so my wife's family and my family on two big, big family holidays. Um, obviously, I've, I've paid off my mum's car. I'm about to hopefully pay off my mortgage. And, um, and you know, <laughs> one, one thing I'll quickly tell you, which is you're going to, again, it's funny because a lot of your guests, they've done it and been like, you know, don't, don't go splurge a load of money, blah, blah, you know, and sit on it. And it's, like, it's really difficult though because you're like, oh my God, I've never had money and now I've got money. And Fiona, the weekend that happened, um, I said to Fiona, um, Fiona had been through this and she's like, I was like, I feel like I need to spend some money. And she was like, <laughs> and she's like, she said, buy yourself something ludicrously expensive that only you will know. And obviously I'm going to tell you what it is now, but um, but it just get out of your system. And there's a there's a uh, furniture store in the northeast of England, and it's it's stupidly expensive. And we've never bought anything from there. And there was years ago, my wife and I went there, and they had this like Chesterfield chair, you know, and you sit in it and you just sink in it. We used to live in Scotland, actually, and it's the type of thing you would see in a bar in Scotland, you know, a old man just sit, sitting there drinking his whiskey. And this thing was like two and a half thousand pound. And and I remember my wife and I saying like, it's like to the the Cafe Twenty One. Who pay? Who buys this thing? And I said, I'm like, right, I'm gonna drive down there. And I go with so I drove down. It was Easter weekend. I drove down, and I walked in. And I went looking for. It. I went that one there, and it said in stock. I'm like, I'm having this one. And I said, right, I'll, I'll take that. And I didn't even look at the price, but I knew it was a couple of grand or something like that. And they're like, great, great. And then, and there's like, I've got this like elation. And the guy comes back and said, really sorry, but it's a 14 week delivery time. And I was like, dude. <laughs> I was like, you've just broke my heart, but I did, I did buy one, and it's coming in a, in a few weeks. But yeah, so I know it's it's silly, but you know, other things, holidays, and just, just you yeah. better enjoy every moment you're sitting in that two thousand pound chair. I'll send every you a picture, John. Of... I'm going to send you a picture when I'm drinking a, a nice Scottish whiskey or actually a bourbon or something like that, and just in the in the fancy chair. Yeah, when it arrives, yeah. anyway. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I get sad when, when you ask when you ask the question about the trophies and people say, Oh no, I didn't didn't get anything. I just I, I think You gotta buy a trophy, man. No, I think it's a euphoric moment in the in the in the journey of an entrepreneur. And it's for me personally, it was one that is unbelievably unexpected. I never I it was never the plan and I'm so unbelievably grateful and feel privileged and very lucky and you know it hasn't happened by accident. You put in the effort, and, sure. but nevertheless, it's still a bizarre situation to find yourself in. And like anything, like I would say to my team or anyone else, like celebrate the milestones in life because you don't know when they're going to happen next. And so, yeah. And but hey, back to work now and busy, and you know, yeah, and we've got our 
I've got a lot of stuff to do. We still still some skin in the game for uh, remarketing. So oh yes, uh, I'm I'm fantastic. very incentivized and looking forward to the next few years. It's going to be fun. Give us a, just uh, let us people know where to find you. First of all, you've written a book. Um, tell us just a little bit about the book and where people can find that. Sure. Yeah, the book's called The Floundering Founder, and effectively, it's all the things I've learned in the last twelve years up to a point of pretty much the transaction actually. And it was things I've talked about today, actually, John, and, you know, how to niche down, how to know, how to learn how to say no. And half of the book is about your business. And the other half is actually about investing in yourself and making time. A lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of people that start businesses are so consumed by the business, they forget to spend time on themselves. And I've almost found hacks in my life, you know, in terms of journaling, um, in terms of having a day off just to learn every month, 10 minutes of reading every day, like things that... I think are doable for a busy entrepreneur. And I've tried to capture those in, in, in kind of 24 small chunky le- like chunk lessons. And, and I'd literally wrote it for entrepreneurs. So like each chapter is like 10 pages. Cause I was like, no one has more of an attention span <laughs> or less of an Shorter attention, attention span. span than us. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. The floundering founder. Okay. We'll look for that. Um, what about social? Can people reach out to you on LinkedIn yeah. or, or Twitter or what's the best, yeah, best place to do that? Best. I mean, there, I do have a website, which is my full name, which is romansegal.com, um, which is R-A-M-A-N-S-E-H-G-A-L.com. And then remarketing, which is R-A-marketingPR.com, you know, if anyone wants to check out the business as well. And then just find me on LinkedIn. I think there's only like a couple of us and I'm not the, I'm not an IT SEO guy in India. In um, you'll see me coming up in, <laughs> in Boston or sorry in, in the UK so yeah, yeah and we'll, pretty... we'll link to R- Ramon's LinkedIn profile at builtthecell.com along with uh, all the other things you mentioned so I think we'll we'll be able to folks will be able to track yeah. you down for sure and uh, well listen I, I'd love to have you back when uh, when you sell the next the last tranche to uh, whatever journey that has it uh, it was fun to do this as the first round so hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again uh, i hope so john and honestly just to, just to reiterate what i've already said i'm i'm a genuinely i'm so grateful for what you put into the world and it has benefited me my business my family my life and um uh, yeah and thanks to you, your listeners uh, sorry your your guests and community that contribute as well it's uh you do some great work and you make an impact on people's lives so thank you very much oh that's <clears throat> very generous of you to say Thanks, Ron. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll do this again soon. All right, man. Thank you. And there you have it for today's episode with Ramon Segal. We hope you enjoyed John Warlow's conversation today with Ramon. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along as always with the definitions for some of the more technical terms referenced, you can head over to our episode page at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great guest for the podcast here, you can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you're going to have the chance to either nominate someone else or yourself who you believe would be a great guest right here on builttosell.com. So again, to nominate yourself or someone else, you can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate. If you love this podcast and want more content just like this, then head over to our YouTube page at Built to Sell Radio. We're there. We are starting to introduce some brand new content to the channel. So head over to our YouTube page at Built to Sell Radio. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering. And finally, thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring this content to you. 
Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To find an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, visit valuebuilder.com. Again, that is valuebuilder.com. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. 